0: Kansas City is a brawling, lusty city that stands defiantly on the shores of the Missouri River, straddling 12 railroads, seven airlines, and a network of transcontinental highways. It's the center of a thriving empire that stretches north to Iowa and Nebraska, south to Arkansas and Oklahoma. Kansas City is noted for its beef business, the most flourishing in the nation, and for 10-story towers filled with golden grain. And how would you like your Kansas City steak, sir? Kansas City is known, too, for its baseball, for the athletics who were transplanted from Philadelphia to grow strong and sturdy in the rich, fertile soil of the mighty Midwest. Kansas City proves its baseball pride by queuing up for tickets whenever the A's are in town. In the first two years of its membership in the American League, the club each year drew more than one million fans into spacious municipal Stadium, One of the most modern in the game, this giant arena was built in record time when the A's came to town. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast
1: devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host,
0: Tim Hanlon.
1: All right, let's get this show on the road, shall we? How are you doing, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. It's Good Seat's still available, of course, as you know. By now, it's the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in the realm of professional sports. Thanks for coming by. We appreciate it. Uh, If you're a return listener, thanks for doing so. And if you're new to the proceedings, uh, well, welcome. And uh, pull up a chair. Uh, This week, as the uh, little clip there at the beginning kind of informs us, We're going back to baseball. Hey, let's welcome back baseball, shall we? Uh, Yeah, they're finally uh, doing the spring training thing, and it looks like we're going to have a real actual season. Uh, But it's ironic that we're uh, having this conversation this week with our guest, Andy McHugh. Um, uh, It's interesting for a couple reasons. Number one, he's got a new book out coming out on uh, April 1st, so depending on when you're listening to this, uh, either just prior as we drop this episode, uh, you can order it in uh, pre-order fashion. Uh, on our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, just uh, search up this episode 254 and click on the convenient link to Amazon, uh, and uh, voila, you will be uh, whisked away to the pre-order, and you'll get it as soon as it's uh, hot off the presses. If you're listening after April 1st, well, it's available now, and you can do the same thing. Uh, either way, you'll be giving us a couple of shekels of uh, referral love, and we appreciate that. Uh, but I digress. not Not too much. It's called Stumbling Around the Bases, the book. The American League's Mismanagement in the Expansion Eras. And as our little clip sort of gives it a little taste uh, of, one of those uh, interesting expansions uh, was the Kansas City version of the Athletics, the A's. Uh, depending on what year it was, they were either the A's or the Athletics, or perhaps confused as both. Uh, the clip there was from the um, preseason of 1957, Uh, That would be entering in the third year of the Kansas City's version uh, of existence of the A's, having uh, relocated uh, just a few years earlier from Philadelphia, where they were the perennial number two team, really, in town. Um, uh, But as uh, as a really good example, frankly, of how the American League kind of, you know, sort of did the expansion and or relocation thing. Uh, frankly, not all that great, and that's kind of the thesis of of our conversation with Andy coming up uh, in just a bit. Um, you can literally look at the listings of the franchise, uh, 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 enablements or or enfranchisements or or expansions. There you go. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, or relocations uh, between the two leagues, American League and National League, and uh, the National League, uh, in many respects, uh, looks relatively stable uh, in the modern era. I mean, starting with the Boston Braves moving to Milwaukee, uh, the Dodgers and the Giants, of course, moving to the West Coast in 58. Um, and, you know, teams basically kind of uh, expanding and kind of sticking around. I mean, I, yeah, the, the Brewers moved to the American League in 98. Um the Colt 45s renamed themselves to the Astros, and the Braves, of course, moved to Atlanta. But th- that Braves move to Atlanta uh, was in 1965. I think the only other time since then, I guess, was the Expos moving to D.C. Um, in 2005. Other than that, uh, relatively quiet uh, and uh, uh, and focused, those National League expansions and relocations. You look at the American League, however— uh, you know, uh, St. Louis moving to Baltimore in 1954, sure. The Philadelphia A's moving to Kansas City in 55, sure. But then you get into things like the Senators uh, moving to Minneapolis-St. Paul, and then there's a new Senators team being enfranchised the next year in 61, and the Los Angeles Angels uh, uh, becoming a new franchise in 1961, and they renamed themselves the California Angels, and that has been st- it still continues to go on. I think they're now called the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. No, sorry, that's actually not true. In 2016, they moved their name to fully Los Angeles Angels, which is what they were called back in 61 when they first started. But they've permutated California Angels and, you know, craziness. And then, of course, Kansas City moved to Oakland, became the Oakland A's and then the Seattle Pilots for a year. And then they moved to Milwaukee and became the I mean, just on and on and on and on. The second senators became the Rangers of Texas. It's just – it's craziness, and by comparison to the National League, the American League, very reflexive, very defensive, very reactionary, it seems, Um, in its uh, uh, fitful uh, evolution, shall we say. Uh, And that's the topic at hand with Andy McHugh this week. And again, it's interesting timing because as uh, the new collective bargaining agreement has been uh, ratified and agreed to between the players and the owners here in 2022 – As we get ready for another uh, season, you'll know that there's just a ton of changes uh, coming to the game again uh, in terms of pitching clock, the the designated hitter rule, which has long been a unique wrinkle of the American League. We think Charlie Finley was uh, an instigator of such, and he's a really good example of the kind of crazy, wacky, uh, uh, in many cases unstable or instable uh, owners uh, in in the American League and their approach to, to expansion and whatnot. Um, the designated hit of the rule is now going to be uh, across both leagues, right? Um the scheduling is going to become much more um I guess uh, uh, even uh, across both what I would argue is now what used to be known as the National League and used to be known as the American League. I mean, you're the watering down of the distinctions between the leagues uh is only gonna get more um uh pronounced, I guess, uh, in the next couple of years. And you know, the intra-division rivalries uh, are going to wane. Uh, There'll be less uh, 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 frequency of those those games intra-league. You know, the Yankees will be coming to Pittsburgh once a year now instead of once every couple of years. Um, You know, I don't know what those distinctions are. So I could be the old man yelling at the clouds here, but uh, it's interesting we're going to be talking about the American League relative to uh, the expansion uh, mechanisms of the National League. But Now we're in an era, it seems, where those American and national labels don't seem to matter much anymore, especially given this new collective bargaining agreement. Um, But that said, it's part of the history. Uh, It's part of the exploration. And for sure, in our little genre of that sports history, uh, a whole bunch of teams that have come and gone or were previously domiciled and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that is just music to our ears and thus the excuse for our fun conversation coming up in just a moment's time. Uh, with Annie McHugh, the author of the brand new book called Stumbling Around the Bases. And we're going to get into the American League's, uh, shall we say, uh, not so uh, straightforward uh, approach to expansion and uh, relocation uh, in just a few seconds. A uh, sponsor of the week roulette game. Let's spin the wheel and what do we land? How about something thematic, shall we? Ebbsfield Flannels, of course. Our friends in Seattle. Uh, Ebbets.com, that's E-B-B-E-T-S.com. And uh, there, uh, as most fans of uh, sports memorabilia and clothing and uh, nostalgically uh, rich uh, and uh, true to history uh, collections, uh, you know, Ebbets Field Flannels is just uh, probably the, uh, the king of, of all of those. And uh, a great tribute to a bunch of the teams we'll be talking about today. Uh, can be found and uh, perhaps ogled and perhaps purchased, shall we say, uh, with their amazing Ebbetsfield flannels uh, at Um, their jacket collection, the Major League Baseball Authentic Jackets Collection. These are, are high-quality uh, replicas of all kinds of teams uh, and the uh, the uh, the jackets that their players and managers would have been wearing at the time. For example, there's a gorgeous St. Louis Browns 1952 authentic jacket at Ebbets.com. You can find uh, not only the Kansas City Athletics 1960 authentic jacket, but the Philadelphia Athletics 1953 version of the athletic jacket. What are the differences? Well, the Kansas City A's ones, one is um, is trimmed with uh, red and blue and has that uh, sort of smart-looking scripted letter A on its uh, Uh, Left breast uh, area, not a pocket, but sort of where a pocket would be. Um, And the Philadelphia version's got the uh, really cool retro uh, elephant with the uh, A's little banner on its back. Um, Really cool stuff. How about the Washington Senators? Uh, Certainly something we're going to be talking about. The 1966 version of their authentic jacket is there for you at Ebbets.com, Ebbets Field Flannels. Uh, The uh, Los Angeles Angels, uh, the 1961 original version, um, yes, the LA Angels existed in the Pacific Coast League, but when they became uh, or where they were expanded to in the American League, uh, the 1961 authentic jacket version is there for you there uh, at Ebbets.com as well. And of course, who could forget? And we certainly don't like to forget the Seattle Pilots, the one-year wonder of 1969. You want that really cool, authentic jacket. You live in Seattle and you want to show just how deep your baseball and sports fandom runs. The Seattle Pilots 1969 authentic jacket uh, there, too. Of course, you would expect nothing less from Ebbetsville flannels. They live and breathe and are domiciled in Seattle, of all places. Uh, And that and many, many, many other great, high-quality, Thoroughly researched and painstakingly crafted uh, items for you available there. Uh, and we thank our friends there at Ebbets Field Flannels. Again, that's Ebbets.com, EBBETS.com. And yes, a promo code for you there to save 10% off all of your purchases. That's Good Seats 10. Good Seats, the number 10. That's the promo code at Ebbets.com. Thank you, Ebbets Field Flannels. We appreciate your patronage of our little show and our support and your support for it, et cetera. All right, let's get into the et cetera, shall we? Let's talk American League Baseball. Here's our conversation we had with Andy McHugh just last week. Please, as always, enjoy. Maybe uh, to to give our audience a bit of of some background, uh, this is not your first rodeo in the realm of, uh, of baseball history. What's your entree to? to all of this in the first place. You're not a baseball writer by trade, are you?
2: No, I was actually a a, a business reporter, uh, editor, columnist, uh, almost exclusively in the business realm for uh, most of my adult career. Uh, I did do some sports just because, or really baseball, because I loved it. And uh, they'd occasionally occasionally let me off the leash to write something about baseball. But basically, I I was a business reporter. Um, and therefore, most of the stuff I've written about baseball has involved the business end of the game.
1: And uh, give us a sense of how this particular story in your mind came about. It, it seems to me it was uh, more of an outgrowth of another project and, and maybe even influenced by <laughs> maybe you could also describe what uh, who's on the cover of this book, too, to our audience. Um, the, the cover of the
2: book is a is a picture of three um, what should I call them, leadership figures in the American League. Uh, Joe Cronin, the league's president, Bowie Kuhn, who was then the commissioner, and John Fetzer, who uh, through the 60s and into the early 70s was probably the most influential figure in, in the councils of the American League owners. The, the The book actually grew out of my previous book, the, the biography of Walter O'Malley, and as I was writing it, I, as I was writing the part about the expansion of 1961-62 and uh, the introduction of the Angels into the Southern California market, I, as I looked at it, it just struck me how badly the American League had handled the entire thing. Uh, their, their choice of markets, um, the fact that they really didn't seem to know what they want, they kept changing their mind and putting out new plans and going back and forth. But the, the fact of the matter was that the national league had skunked them and, you know, got the two great markets on the West coast and the American league would spend the next 20 years, basically trying to catch up to that. Um, and then I started, I my friend, uh, Rob Garrett wrote a very nice book about the history of the San Francisco giants. And, um, uh, in reading that, uh, I was again struck about how bad a decision it was that the American League allowed Charlie Finley to move into San Francisco. And you took a market there, the Giants. The Giants had been there for 10 years at that point, and they'd averaged basically $1.5 million a year for those 10 years. The A's move in, and for the next 10 years – the two teams together averaged 1.7 million. So the A's weren't gaining that much. The American League wasn't gaining that much. And the Giants were taking it in the neck. And I'm thinking, this is not a good decision. And it also touches off the forced expansion of 1969. Kansas City is thoroughly angry about the departure of the A's. The American League is, is very conscious of that and wants to do something. So they set out to uh, expand and give Kansas City a team. The National League does not want to go along. They do not think that baseball is ready for further expansion. Um, but the American League feels it has to force the issue to stay out of court. Um, so they expand um, with uh, Seattle and Kansas City. Um, and th- there are two more issues here. First of all, Seattle and Kansas City are much smaller than Montreal and San Diego together, the two cities that the National League chooses to expand to. Again, choosing lesser markets. Uh, one of the things I note in the book that if you look at, at attendance for just last year, 2021, um, of the 15 smallest attendance draws in Major League Baseball, 10 of them are at cities that were originally chosen by the American League. They consistently had this ability to choose the lesser markets, as they did in 69. Um, In addition, in Seattle, they completely bollocks the, the way they choose the ownership group. In Kansas City, they sit down, they solicit bids, they get four or five different bids, they look at the possible ownership groups and they choose well with Ewing Kaufman. In Seattle, Joe Cronin walks into town. This is this is the market they really wanted. That's and why they were willing to let Charlie Finley move to Oakland. They were desperately trying to catch up with attendance on the West Coast, so they felt they had to go into Seattle if they're going to go into Kansas City. So in Seattle, Joe Cronin goes in. And he goes to the only people that baseball really knows in Seattle, the Soriano brothers. Um, uh, Dewey is the president of the Pacific Coast League. Um, he's in partnership with his brother Max, and basically, um, Cronin basically says to the Sorianos, "You've got the franchise if you can come up with the money." They overlook what had what had led Charlie Finley not to go to Seattle in sixty eight when he moved the a's he would have rather gone to Seattle, but he thought that the minor league ballpark that was available in Seattle was simply uh, not conducive to to doing anything at all It was just it wasn't even a good minor league ballpark anymore, much much less a major league ballpark but uh, the American League plows ahead the Sorianos who don't have good connections with the business community there, as the NFL would prove a few years later, um, there's money, there's money in Nordstrom's, there's money in Weyerhauser, there's money in, in Boeing and other big companies that are based in Seattle, you know, much less Microsoft years later. Um, but they, there's plenty of money there, but the Sorianos don't have that connection. So they scratch around among their, the, their other brothers and and their acquaintances, but it winds up that 60% of the money from the franchise comes from out of town, comes from Cleveland, basically, from William Daly, who had owned the Indians in an earlier iteration. So, I mean, this should have been a morning sign to the American League uh, about Seattle, that they, they couldn't came, come up with local money. Um, and so they strike a, they, they're going to go ahead, they're going to use the minor league ballpark, six Stadium. Uh, which is at this point uh, 30 some odd years old. It's been owned by the city for most of the last decade and has not been maintained very well. Um, But they strike a deal with the city that the city is going to put some money into refurbishing the ballpark. But when the American League signs that deal, they don't specify what the specifics of things in terms of number of seats and quality and, Uh, the amenities that are going to be built into the ballpark are going to be. Um, They first say it's going to be, oh, maybe 28,000 seats. Then that's cut to 25,000. Then that's cut even more. And it's clear as you get into it, the city is just not that interested. Yeah, they like having a major league team, but they're not that interested in um, really doing too much for this major league team. Five members on the city council. Only three of them are really interested, and two of them are actively opposed to spending any money on the pilots. Um, but they they get the they get the uh, I guess you couldn't call it legislation in a city council, but they get the deal through. Uh, but then the city contract manager starts fighting, and he doesn't want to spend the money. And they're they're in the January of nineteen sixty nine with opening day, you know, two and a half months away before any work actually gets going on the ballpark and of course it's not finished by opening day um there is the same time going on a a referendum um in which public money would be made available to uh, build a new ballpark the ballpark that would eventually become the kingdom Um, and that is barely passed uh in february after cronin realizes there's a problem and ships in mickey mantle and a bunch of other stars to you know talk up the talk up the referendum um, but then that gets bogged down because two different groups in Seattle start fighting about what the site should be should it you know, you know be where the kingdom was eventually built or on another site um, and then when the season opens, the pilots fans quote unquote um, find that they are paying basically the highest prices in the majors so you've got the combination of a bad team on the field as as all expansion teams are uh you've got uh, a crummy stadium really um and you've got this fight uh, that's clearly being reported in the newspapers about where the future stadium is going to go uh, needless to say it, attendance is not is not good and as the season goes on um uh a- attendance just keeps their, kind of shrivels up the Sorianos get very worried that, that uh, uh, they're going to have a, a a problem, you know, not losing too much money. It's to the point, I found a memo in Bowie Kuhn's papers at, at Cooperstown in which by the middle of the season, Kuhn's staff is discussing a reorientation of the leagues uh, and the divisions within the leagues, moving teams around. And at that point, Uh, They've already given up on Seattle. They're they're talking about the team having moved to Milwaukee as if they knew something in advance.
1: But Uh, the the pilots, yeah, certainly, I mean, probably, you know, the the most glaring misfire of of any sort of expansion franchise, I guess, even in the case of American League history. But let let, let me step back for a second and say, at what point, though, and I guess the proverbial historical hindsight is 2020, but what point, though, in your research – you sort of thread together this theme of uh, botchedness, I guess, uh, because in, in your in your book you kind of go through sort of three waves of this, and it's almost like lessons, uh, it, most glaringly, I guess, the pilots, uh, probably being the, the, the most acute example, seem to have not been sort of learned yep. during this sort of process. I mean, I, w- w- where does this originate? It, it, it almost feels like. It was almost sort of almost etched in stone even before that first expansion back in the 50s. I think so. I
2: mean, I, th- I think the whole process um, w- was deeply flawed. Um, you, you did not have a strong league president. You didn't really have a strong uh, leader. I mean, Fet- Fetzer was clearly the most influential. And he was very influential on television because that was the business he was in. And people listened to him because he was a thoughtful and a reasonable man. But I think they they got caught up in this competition uh, for markets on the West Coast, for attendance on the West Coast. And ultimately, it's a structure that did not lend itself to good decisions. Um, Each of these guys, eight and then 10 and even later 12, um, is probably not paying attention to his business. Calvin Griffith is, but the rest of these guys are, you know, building cars or making pizza or, you know, whatever their business happened to be, real estate, uh, all of these things. And baseball is a secondary consideration. Um, and so they're they're not coming to the table, I think, with really thoughtful uh, approaches to what is going on, something that I think Got changed uh, in the later '70s and '80s when when uh, Lee McPhail becomes the president of the American League, and then you have a a somebody who's prepared to to lead to the extent that he's allowed to by the owners, but also prepared to be a terrific chief of staff and give them you know information that they can use. So I, I think it, it it was a it was a structural. It was. It was almost childishly competitive. I mean, when you, you got in, if you can go back to the 61, 62 expansions uh, for a moment. At first, the American League says, oh, we're going to expand uh, you know, by two teams in 1962. And then the National League jumps in saying it's going to expand at two teams in 1962. And when they picked up the ownership groups from the Continental League, that became the owners of the Mets and the Astros and were clearly superior to whatever the American league was going to come into all of a sudden Del Webb is saying, it was like, it was like they were two 10 year olds on the playground and, and Del Webb is saying, well, if you're going to do such and such, you know, we're not going to wait till 62, we're going to expand by two teams in 1961 and that'll show you. Well, what, what it did was it wind up giving the angels seven days to prepare for their draft, um, you know, two months before the season starts. They don't have any kind of a staff. They don't have a ticket operation. They don't have a minor league system. None of this stuff uh, because the American League, you know, was just bursting to compete with the National League in a very childish way. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of factors came into play, a poor, poor leadership, this desire to catch up, uh, one of the factors that goes back to the very beginning is that they were slow to integrate. And the, the quality of the teams, I mean, if you look at the, the all-star games in the 60s and 70s, the National League was winning all the time because they had all those great black players that they had picked up in the 50s, you know, Mays and, and Banks and Aaron, all of those guys. Um, And so they were dominating the All-Star Games. One of the most interesting things to me was looking at average attendance per game by league. And by 1966, the average uh, um, National League game was drawing 47% more people than the average American League game. Um, And the American League changed the way it reported attendance. It moved from um, it moved from uh, turnstile count to tickets sold, which made it look like bigger attendance. And yet again, by the early seventies, the National League was back to an, a a differential of over forty percent per game. Um, so they were just outdrawing them left and right. It was the quality of the product. It was the quality of the markets they chose. It was the quality of the team owners they chose. I mean, they. It's not only the debacle in Seattle, but you're dealing with, with people like Finley and, for that matter, Bill Veck. These guys are not team players. They are not on the lookout for, for the league as a whole. They are very much people who are dedicated to improving their own franchises um, and, and not you know, really looking at what, what the league needs
1: but let's, so, uh, let's 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 take a step back for a second and and talk about the 50s because uh, you know it it um it's really interesting we sort of see this sort of uh, uh great expansion sort of uh, uh in other leagues and in you know in the case of the NHL right that it, it took them until 1967 to recognize that there was you know a great big western uh, uh, world I out could, there yeah um but but yeah, the 50s obviously was where baseball sort of kind of sort of recognized that there were some some greener pastures out there and it's very interesting too again hindsight being 2020 um you know it feels in some respects like the national league uh especially uh with uh the 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 great west coast migration uh of the of the dodgers and the giants right it was, that was sort of like a that was a seismic and 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 uh, in new york terms cataclysmic uh, sort of yeah. event right that in some respects the american league almost certain maybe didn't sort of see coming yet it was clear in both of these leagues during the 50s that there were opportunities ahead outside. And for, what, 30, almost 40 years, both of these leagues really had, had hadn't changed really at all until all of a sudden, right?
2: Damn, yeah. Well, I think that's very true. Um, but I, 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 I mean, if you look at if you say you read the sporting news starting right after World War II up until the late up until the Dodgers and Giants move what you've got is is a kind of an intellectual recognition that those are huge markets out there and they have to get into Major League Baseball somehow. So, I mean, they and this is all talk. You know, nothing actually gets done except maybe a study. But, you know, are we going to expand to 10 teams each? Are we going to start a third league? Are we going to make the PCL a major league? All of these ideas are kicked around, but nothing is done. And even the National League doesn't do anything but sit back and say, oh, Walter and Horace, yeah, go ahead. I mean, this is all driven ultimately by O'Malley's recognition that this was the way he needed to go for his franchise and his ability to talk to Horace Stoneham and say, Horace, I, I know you're already committed to moving to Minneapolis, but it would make more sense if you moved to San Francisco when we keep this re- this rivalry alive and having Stoneham buy into that. So it, it's a process, really, that at its base is driven by one owner who specifically, I think, baseball is his business. You know, it's not any of these other businesses. Baseball is his business. And he's thinking about it. Do, and do you he think drives the National League to the West Coast.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. Do do you think he got, so obviously he was a a baseball lifer by that point. Right. But I mean, I, you know, in some respects, the American league almost kind of set some of these gears in motion. Right. Because I I think people sort of get, everybody sort of remembers the Dodgers and the Giants bolting West, but you know, people forget that a few years earlier, um, 54 and 55 in succession, um, the second team in St. Louis, the Browns moved to Baltimore and the second team, if you will, I'm not talking historically, but at least in terms of followed uh, uh, yeah. fandom and whatnot, the Athletics in Philadelphia moved to Kansas City. Two brand new, well, Baltimore not essentially new, but essentially modern day new markets, right? And while Baltimore yeah. and Kansas City not sort of the the most gigantic uh, television rich and 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 fertile uh, markets that the United States had to offer at that time, it did certainly. Give some sense that, hey, you know, the old order of these teams that really haven't, you know, moved anywhere in decades. And by the way, in certain markets where they can't even support two clubs, you know, maybe that's sort of a modern day sort of hint that, that stuff needs to change. I, I, I don't know. It, it, I mean, I'm certainly reading into something and you're the expert, not me, but, you know, um, I don't think think it takes a rocket science when people see some initial moves like that and go, geez, what else is out there? And the the West Coast certainly looks very alluring.
2: I think you're absolutely right, Tim. It's just that they were ultimately uh, those two and and the Braves, for that matter, moving from Boston to Milwaukee in the same time period. They were just too timid. Um, And I mean, if, if you look at it, Kansas City which is the farthest west that any of those teams moved at that time. Kansas City is closer to Boston than it is to the West Coast. They just weren't willing to think too boldly about what was possible. And and they were passing up what, in 1950, was the third biggest market in the country in LA, and which by 1960 would be the second biggest market in the country.
1: So wouldn't wouldn't have the? I, I guess from an American League perspective. Well, no, I actually both of the leagues. Maybe you can sort of enlighten me. Would you know? We've done a, a bunch of conversations around the the Pacific Coast League, which you know, to to those who who were there around that time. I mean, they would fight you to say that it was about as major league as you're going to find. Certainly not day to day per se, but there were absolutely moments of equalness if not maybe out you know uh outperforming um why wouldn't any either of these leagues either together in tandem to carve up the the west coast or separately as as a move for their individual leagues go after the pcl and sort of i don't know make a make a purchase so to speak it almost seems like it'd be ready-made while well, the rivalries or the names versus trying to Expand their way and 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 start anew, if you will, and 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 try to start from scratch.
2: Well, I mean, the P- the PCL made an effort to get themselves converted into a major league, and that ran from right after World War II until they finally gave up the ghost in about 1953. And the major leagues were simply both leagues were simply resistant. I um, mean, I think um, ultimately they hoped to get those markets for themselves but couldn't really just agree on how to go about it. Um, and again, this, this is a, a function of, of, the, of the way that all of it's a very fragmented leadership structure. Uh, you have a, a commissioner whose duties are really very limited. I mean, we all expect the commissioner to be, you know, the leader of baseball. He doesn't have any leadership role. I mean, if you, if you read his job description, it's, it's all about, you know, protecting the image of the game and making sure gambling doesn't take place. I mean, that's, that's why they put um, Landis in there to begin with. And what was still the job by this time, Ford Frick has it. But they're still, they're not willing to put anybody in charge. It's very fragmented among, the, among these owners. Very few of them are really paying attention um, and seeing the possibilities. And of course, they, they do want to reserve the markets for themselves. I mean, right before World War II, and I mean literally right before World War II, they nearly put a team into LA. Um, Phil Ball of the, of the St. Louis Browns, who was you know probably in the worst shape of anybody in the majors, uh, spent a year researching uh, plane schedules and train schedules, and he worked out a schedule for the 1942 season, which the American League owners were prepared to accept. And he went to Chicago for the winter meetings, um, expecting to get that improved. He goes to a Chicago Cardinals football game on the afternoon of Sunday, December 7th. And here's the news. Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor. And he knew right away, you know, with a major war starting, there was no way they're going to allow him to move. Uh, by the end of the war, he sold the team. Nobody else is willing to, to, you know, to to grab that possibility and really go with it. Um, I know in Los Angeles, reading the papers, um, many times in the mid to early 50s, when you're talking about that period where where the Braves and Browns and athletics all moved and other weak teams like the Senators and the Reds are seen to be on the block, there's much talk in Los Angeles about, about getting a team and who it might be and all of that, but it, it never goes beyond the talking stage. Um, you know, these guys are – I mean, it, it was a risk. I mean, it, it's easy to look back today, certainly, and even a few years after, after the Dodgers and Giants moved and think, whoa, these guys had it made from the beginning. Well, they weren't at all sure of that. I mean, there were there were risks involved, travel risks. I know the Dodgers had to guarantee every other team in the National League that that team would take away literally as much visiting team's share from their series in Los Angeles as they had the year before in Brooklyn because those teams were all scared that O'Malley wasn't going to draw any attendance, wasn't going to make any money. Um, and in, in you know, in retrospect, that just seems crazy, given the kind of attendance the Dodgers have had for 60 years now. But at the time, it was a, it was a real fear. Um, you know, it was not an established market. They were not really playing in, in any kind of a major league stadium. Nobody knew what this town was like. And of course, the Easterners all thought that Western people were, you know, these kind of superficial bohunks. Um, so. I, th- I think it 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 took a it took some business courage uh, to make the move that that O'Malley and Stoneham made.
1: It's really interesting too because baseball is um, you know is has historically and uniquely been sort of this um, uh, I would say controlled chaos. It's interesting we're having this this conversation <laughs> in the spring of 2022, just after the yeah. latest collective bargaining agreement and and. It, what's striking to me is just the the sheer um, uh, doubling down on uh, how can I best to, to generis, genericizing baseball into one gigantic pot n- known as Major League Baseball. Whereas at this period of time, for our, our young snappers listening, you know the American League and the National League were yes under the aegis of then organized baseball and what will become essentially formally known as Major League Baseball, but the, they were dynamically different organizations. Yes, common rules, common whatevers, but, you know, d- unique rules to each league and, uh, sort of different sensibilities. And you're even mentioning it, uh, two layers of, of management that oversaw those leagues that were, I guess, nominally orchestrated or at least overseen by a commissioner, quote unquote, right? But it's interesting that that dynamic, right, The, the these two leagues were not as sort of conjoined and homogenized as they are today. These were very no. sort of different and, and, and oddly competitive, yet needing to be somewhat, I don't want to say cooperative, but at least understanding of the other because they kind of needed each other, especially come to World Series time and other things.
2: Yeah, well, I mean I think you're you're absolutely right. They were they were almost childishly competitive. I mean, the league presidents would go into the locker rooms at the all-star games and make these rah-rah speeches about how we're gonna win. They would prevent, or sorry, they couldn't prevent, they would jawbone to stop the trading of any stars from one league to the other. If if you go back until maybe the Frank Robinson trade, if you go back and look in the era before that, there are hardly any. You know, even above average players who are traded from one league to the other, it just doesn't happen. You know, maybe a guy at the end of his career will change leagues, but the actual trade of one major leaguer to the other league just doesn't happen very often. And it would stay that way. Frankly, what changed it was Marvin Miller. All of a sudden, these guys realized that their real problem was the Major League Baseball Players Association. And they better just stop this, this, you know, childish, often uh, dueling between the National League and the American League and deal with their real problem. Um, and I think that's ultimately what led to the creation of Major League Baseball. They had to deal with the union.
1: What's this? LinkedIn Jobs. Hey, these days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. My goodness. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. Yes, it's no surprise, friends, that LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Of course. Well, did you know that every week that nearly forty million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Come on. Post your job for free at LinkedIn.com slash goodseats. That's LinkedIn.com slash goodseats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our conversation. It's also very interesting too, you look at sort of the expansion history of these two leagues right and um I, l- l- you go to to Wikipedia and just look up the pages of of the expansions and you'll see like the 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 national league is just is like a handful like a maybe ten sort of franchise uh grantings and or moves and the and the relative stability when then you go you flip over to the American leagues page and you oh, see yeah. there's just there's mistake after renaming after uh, uh, you know, leaving and then a new franchise. Literally, the next, I mean, Washington, right? Washington and Kansas City. I mean, these are two great examples here. Maybe we could use this as a segue. But I, it just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's shocking to me how, in two separate cases, the case of the, of the Washington uh, uh, Senators uh, uh, and uh, the Kansas City Athletics, when the, when those teams move, literally almost overnight there's another franchise to take their place mm-hmm. um, and one has to scratch their head and go, well, wait a minute. I mean, these teams left for a reason or, and obviously probably complicated, but how do you, how do you then, how do you expect a, a fan uh, base to kind of just forget about what was for years ago and all of a sudden either embrace, even with the same name on top of that, in some cases, a, a brand new whole cloth franchise that, has zero of that. And is essentially starting from scratch. I mean, to me, that's like the, that's like cases one and two of of how the American league. I don't know. Couldn't get it right. So to speak.
2: They, yeah, they, they, they were driven, I think by, you know, considerations that, that either they created themselves as they did in Kansas city by allowing Finley to move or that, you know, they should have bit the bullet about, I mean, in, in 61, when they created the second version of the senators, their fear was that Congress would rebel against them because the senators couldn't go to baseball games anymore. Um, and, and I think that was, um, that was mistaken, something that it would take them uh, a dozen years to realize when they let the second senators go to Texas uh, without any real repercussions from Congress at all. Um, but they weren't willing to, uh, they weren't willing to really deal. I mean, there were, there were, there was an interesting solution proposed at the time, because people could see that the, that the senators were the old senators, the first senators, were about to be good, as they would be when they became the twins in the, in the early to mid 60s. So it was proposed that those players that, well, Calvin Griffith desperately wanted to get out of Washington. So it was proposed that they give Calvin the expansion franchise in Minnesota, and he could go ahead and build up his team there. And then the other people would get to keep the players that the fans in Washington had gotten to know and would were clearly already major leaguers at that point and, and allow them to stay. But that was nixed. Calvin wanted to keep his players. There's in, in throughout this process in both leagues, There is enormous deference from one owner to another, okay? Um, Because ultimately, I think, if I prevent my colleague here from doing something, I'm ultimately creating a precedent which will stop me from doing the same thing in the future. So they don't like to restrict... An owner's big decisions about where he wants to play or how he wants to get his stadium financed or anything like that. There's just enormous deference there because they they don't want to set up precedents that might come backfire on them.
1: Talk about what you hinted at it before. And we've had a couple of conversations on on this, but I I think it's lost on a lot of folks in the early 60s. The um, the uh, the rumblings and the the the, the shovel digging, I think, in, in some cases around this Continental League. Um, mm. It seems to me that that sort of hastened things, too. But then, then even then, it looks like the National League, in some respects, outsmarted the American League once oh, that definitely. was came and definitely. went, so to speak.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a very interesting uh, episode, the, the whole Continental League thing. to For a brief background, um, When after the Dodgers and Giants left, New York wanted to get a National League team back they put a guy named Bill Shea in charge of a committee to do this. Uh, Shea was a, a New York lawyer. Shea went and hooked up with Branch Ricky, and Ricky had an idea for a third major league. Um, and he started, and Ricky recognized from the beginning that to, to be successful, he was going to need ownership groups with deep pockets because there'd be stadiums and scouting staffs and you know, minor league systems and all of that to be put together. And so... He put the league together. There were two powerhouses who eventually became the ownership group of the Mets and the Astros. Uh, There was a a fairly good group in in Minneapolis built around um, Ham's Brewing and what became Target Stores and groups like that. Uh, Jack Kent Cook in in Toronto put together a a fairly strong group. Um, There was a group in Denver. Um, There was theoretically groups in Atlanta and Los Angeles, but they really never got off the never got off the ground. Um, But when it became clear to the major league owners that this group maybe did really represent a threat when they got into Congress, um, and Congress was debating a bill which would restrict how many minor leaguers each major league team could keep. Um, And the majors won that vote, but they did it with a much smaller margin than their professional lobbyists had told them was, was going to be. Um, and then they decided the Continental League was a, was a factor. And they had a sit-down meeting in 1959 uh, with them. And out of it comes this agreement, uh, or agreement, an agreement that is announced, okay, in which each league will expand by two teams, and the ownership group for those four teams will be chosen from the Continental League owners. Now, at the time, really nobody notices it, but one significant factor is that Del Webb, the owner of the Yankees and the the power in their expansion committee, and Joe Cronin, the league president, say nothing about this. The agreement is announced by Walter O'Malley, backed up by Frick, um, all of the you know positive voices are coming from the national league um, and that 's because del Webb knows that the continental league doesn 't have the ownership groups that he needs from the american league's point of view they're two they have two goals okay they want into southern california they want a team in l a that 's the market they 're desperate for and the the l a continental league group never really came together. They never paid their dues to the league. Uh, they never really defined who they were. And the other market that they that the American League needs is one in Washington because they have promised Calvin Griffin at this point that he can move his team to Minneapolis. And there is no Continental League group in minutes in Washington. So Webb doesn't doesn't what shall I say? He doesn't knock down the idea that this is a done deal. He just says nothing, um, and so the 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 dance with the Continental League starts. Uh, the National League, led by O'Malley, gets the two markets that they want. They want to get into Houston. They want to get back into New York, and they get the two strongest ownership groups. Um, it, it's just a clear victory for the national league at that point. But do, you think, mean, do
1: you think that's, that's bumbling or, or miscalculations or, or just, you know, or just luck, uh, bad luck. I mean, I, where, where's branch Ricky in all this, right? He was, he's was basically the, the guy behind the continental league, the public face of it for sure, but he's got no power.
2: I mean, the, the continental league is falling apart. I mean, it was, it was an idea. That's what branch had. He had an idea. Okay. But he doesn't control these owners. The owners want into Major League Baseball. Bill Shea wants one to gets one of them into New York. Those those are the driving forces here. And Ricky can protest as he does. Um, he, he can call Web uh, names as only Branch Ricky can. Uh, the, the definition of perfidy. Um, but he he really doesn't have any leverage to do anything else at this point. Um, so. I mean, the National League gets what it's want. The American League, I think because they hadn't really thought the problem through. You know, what markets do we want and how can we get into them? They they knew they wanted into L.A., but they hadn't lined up a group there. They hadn't gone to anybody who might be interested and had the money and say, hey, can you put together a group? They hadn't just gone to the Chamber of Commerce and say, hey, we're we're coming in. Why don't you guys you know, work out four or five groups who can apply to us. And they try and do it in a raging hurry because they want to, you know, they want to be a year ahead of the American league. So it, it just, it, it, it wasn't well thought out at all. Um, they didn't step back. Uh, they didn't really try and figure out what their interests were. They get somewhat trapped because they felt they had to put a team into Washington, which was, which was not the greatest market. I mean, there, there were, Others around the country, uh, I mean, you, you could have gone into Dallas, you could have gone into Atlanta, uh, you could have gone into uh, Montreal or Toronto. I mean, all of those would eventually get franchises, and they were all available uh, in
0: 1961.
1: Well, and plus, <clears throat> plus, you were also dealing with, uh, you're, you're, ta- you're taking an old team, moving them and putting a new team with the same name and slapping a new coat of paint on on something that's brand new, right? It was just it seems, you know... Already you're going to put yourself in a ditch before you even get yeah you know, yeah I mean
2: that that was just again a a lot of this is what I would call business courage they weren't they weren't willing to you know break off their ties with Washington, they just thought they were more important and you know they they kind of failed to realize there was a new horizon out there
1: it, um, it sounds like the american league was was quite reactionary. you have a great quote in in your uh, your preface or the intro uh from bill veck he said uh planning is wholly out of keeping with the American <laughs> league tradition of confronting all emergencies head on with capital panic and patchwork. Yes. Uh, you know, and this is a guy obviously been there for decades uh, and he capitalized panic and patchwork. Um And I, you know, it, it does feel like not only that you look at sort of the, the history of it, it looks like that. And it also feels to me too, that there is that sort of, I guess longstanding inferiority complex too, because it's oh, the yeah. quote unquote junior circuit, right? Which is kind of you know uh, funny to listen to, but but it is it was that that third chip on the shoulder that uh, that the National League seemed to kind of exude?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think that's part of that that kind of school ground mentality that I was describing with Webb, in which they're trying to one up the National League um, because it, it's so clearly in terms of. Uh, Attendance uh, in terms of integration. Uh, a lot of the innovations that had come about in the last thirty years or so are all coming out of the National League. Uh, radio broadcasting, um, farm systems, um, those kind of things. Those ideas are all growing out of the National League, uh, not out of the American League. And this is somewhat disguised by the dominance of the of the Yankees. Um, you know, that makes it look like the, the leagues are equal. And of course, in terms of winning world series they're the American league is more than equal. Um, but, it, but in other areas, they're, they are not doing as well. And, and they are not as progressive in their thinking about, you know, where in, in a, in a business sense, where, where is my market? Where am I going to make the most money? Where can I create the most stable franchises?
1: Well, you hinted at it before, um, maybe a comparison of the ownership groups, right? I mean, we we have not, dare, uh spoken of the name of, the, by far, the most uh, illustrious and historic and titanic, uh, or uh, titans, sorry, not titanic, <laughs> titans, I'm sure, I'm sure there, were, there were some years. The New York Yankees, right, are, are you know, were clearly uh, the beneficiaries, at least in the short term, when uh, the two National League teams left uh, uh, for the West Coast. Um, I, w- where was their sort of role in all this? Because I, I, you know, having grown up in New York and and seeing how dominant uh, the Yankees have been on the landscape uh, for for decades and still, in many respects, still are, um, it, it's kind of hard not to think that uh, there was uh, there's a I don't know a, a, an assumption that that keeping the American League a little bit. Um, you know, uh, out of some of these sort of hyper-competitive environments, and maybe to the to the betterment of, say, a, a franchise like the Yankees, is was maybe in their best interest, or maybe I'm just really reading into things. Yeah, I
2: kind of one of the one of the most interesting facts is that in 1958, the Dodgers and the Giants leave New York, and the Yankees attendance goes down. Um, that just the city wasn't as excited about baseball as it had been and i don't know exactly how the yankees owners interpreted that um i mean they were still i mean obviously they won the pennant in 1958 and they went to the world series and and won that as well um
1: yeah but you can't you can't absorb those two long time franchises and those fan bases especially when the, the yankees were essentially hated as as local rivals right but but then you know longer term right in theory it's the whole, you know, New York metropolitan area market now just with one franchise. That's, you know, if you're a businessman, that's, that's a pretty good opportunity in the years ahead.
2: Well, yeah, except I think there's, there's two factors there that, that also played almost equally for, for Walter O'Malley in Los Angeles. One, for the benefit of my league, whether, you're, whether it's O'Malley or Webb who's talking, I need to get into that other guy's market. Because my lead will be stronger if we do that. And second of all, that it's good to have a little rivalry in town. Yeah, there's an awful lot of people in New York who are, put it politely, National League fans or impolitely Yankee haters. Um, And their interest in baseball would be stimulated by having a National League team. I mean, when the Mets show up, they are just awful. And yet people respond to them. Um, So, I, I, I think that, and that playing in the, a, playing the polo
1: grounds, no less, which is falling yeah, apart.
2: Exactly. Um, so, I, I think there, there's a, a realization. I mean, I, I know Walter O'Malley doesn't really want another team in LA, but he knows his league has to get into New York. And the exact opposite, I'm sure, is true of Webb. He knows his league needs to get into LA, and he knows the price is going to be letting a National League team into New York. And he fights it, but Frick makes it pretty clear that the kind of legalistic arguments that Webb and Topic come up with are not going to stand. Um, and so, you know, Webb goes out to make the best deal he possibly can. Um, so I, I think that, that, yeah, I mean, they, they had an interest and they both recognize that interest. But in, in the real world, I think both of them knew it was not going to fly uh they'd have to have to make a deal to let the other guy in.
1: It this is all relatively quaint especially when you look at it <laughs> with the pr- with the prism of of today's yeah as i said earlier homogenized major league baseball right i i um you know i you know i i'm not a nostalgist per se but it it does you know i i i think this book is really important as framework because there there were for 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 many many years differences unique quirky differences that you're describing i think something that really hasn't been investigated for some time and that's sort of the somewhat relatively ham-handedness of of the approach of of expanding the game in in modern times yeah but, you know the rules differences right the dh right you know the american league came up with that for uh, as as a way to speed up the game and make it a little bit more offensively exciting and and lo and behold that one's coming over and now it's going to be the law of the land uh, across both leagues now. So uh, they didn't get it completely wrong, I guess, but it's just, it's very interesting to see how sort of this, uh, you know, uh, intra-league or inter-league or or internal squabble and or competitiveness um, almost sadly doesn't somewhat seem to matter anymore. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing.
2: Um, Yeah. I mean, it does tend to homogenize things. I mean, neither the American league nor the national league exists really in, in any real life terms anymore. They are simply labels to create an all-star game in a world series. Um, and I, I, I think a lot of that has, uh, has disappeared. Uh, but again, I think that goes back to the players association um, and, and its growth and it, and it especially as, its growth in power over the years. I mean, it's, you know, they've, they've been talking about how they, they lost the previous two CBA negotiations, but the fact of the matter is they were in such a strong position already that, um, you know, that they, they, they were, they were giving something back, but they weren't giving all that much back and certainly not at the top end of the pay scale. Um, so I, I think that, that, uh, it's changed it, it's probably uh you know driven more by the, the changing economics of the game than by anything else um and the fact that they are now kind of the, they got used to talking to each other um because they were concerned with marvin miller and then when they started talking with each other they realized how much i think all of the non union related issues were, uh, were the same between each league. You know, And when, when Peter Eubaroth comes in and says, you know, why do we have 20 separate contracts for unions, or sorry, for for uh, for travel, for, for airport travel? Why do we have tra- 20 separate contracts for, for uniforms and this and that? And begins to show them that by doing these kind of industry-wide negotiations, he can cut their costs. It's little things like that that basically begin to put the people from the leagues at the same table consistently, and recognizing how their their interests cross, how the how the really important differences are not between National League and American League, but between small market and large market. Um, and I think that contributed to to the what shall I say the dominance of of the, the leagues and the different leagues. It's yeah. I, I mean, I, I miss that. I mean, I grew up as a national league fan um, and uh, you know, I I kind of miss some of those rivalries, but the game moves on sometimes in the right direction. Sometimes not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I mean, I, you know, I had the luxury of growing up in the New York Metro area and had, you know, had two teams to kind of choose from and root for and see the differences of close hand close up. Right. And, you know, the, in that case, the Mets were always sort of the, the scruffy number two to the, the, the dominant and, and historically uh, uh, rich uh, Yankees. And, you know, I'm sure Uh it was different here in Chicago too, which was uh, the reverse, right. Where the, you know, the, the, the White Sox were a bit, um, you know, always sort of like the second uh, fiddle and and we're constantly talking about moving and stuff. I, I, you know, it's just, it's interesting. I, I think this, this part of, of baseball's history is not only fascinating, but important because, yeah. Around the, you know, these years, right. The, 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 there was a distinct difference between these leagues and for different reasons. And, and, and I think you're highlighting some of them, right. The ownership uh, uh groups for each of these leagues were a bit sort of differently minded. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and in, in many respects, it showed when they pulled the trigger on major and significant moves. Right. But, you know, I, I think for every mismanaged expansion, uh, decision that the American League made or or a reactive one, you know, you, you, in some respects, you look at things like, like, like the DH rule, you know, that survived. And that was a sort of a, of a, a, a way to sort of a, approach keeping the game fresh and, and interesting to fans and, and, and somewhat more competitive versus sort of the dead wood, if you will, of a pitcher right. who, you know, hadn't swung a bat okay. in 15 years. Right.
2: Tim, don't get me going on the DH rule. <laughs> <laughs>
1: not a fan, huh?
2: not a fan no i th- I think it takes it away take
1: strategy out of things doesn 't it it does and i
2: mean if if you look look at the numbers, I think the difference now looks last time I looked at it is the difference in total runs per game between a national league game and an American League is 0.43 runs that 's not a lot um, and you're you 're giving up a lot of a lot of strategy. I remember a story I wrote, gosh. 30 years ago, probably about signs and signals. And I was interviewing some third base coaches and I asked an American league third base coach about it. And his response is, Oh, we don't give any signals before about the sixth inning. We just, you know, we stand around and wait, wait for the big guy to hit a home run. Um, so they, they, they were taking that whole strategic level out of the American league game. And yeah, you know, I mean, watching a, a pitcher flail at three strikes is is not the most entertaining thing. But uh, at the same time, you can, they can do something, some of it surprisingly, some of them who really make an effort. Like I get to watch Kershaw here in L.A., and he's not much of a hitter, but boy, does he try. He's become an excellent bunter. He chops at the ball. There, I mean, there are things going on in his head. And as a fan, you can watch them and see them. And that, to me, is what's interesting. Um, they, I mean, I'm, I'm one of these, I guess, the two people in the entire world who like that ghost runner on second in extra innings. Uh, not because it shortens the game, because I think it causes all the managers and the players in the field to think a lot more than they had to. Um, and, and I like that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I, I I don't disagree and and I you know the pitching clock and I, I you know I sure I I I I speeding it up just for its own sake but you know I the idea of strategizing um yeah when you take the strategy out or you homogenize it I I don't I don't to me the rivalries I think of the things that's the that's the thing that I think to me is is uh going to get hollowed out and you know I for every you know uh, Yankees Red Sox rivalry, uh, but yeah, and the crosstown classics now here in Chicago and stuff. Yeah. I mean, those are terrific. But you they know, I, I guess for everybody who who laments the fact that uh, intra league uh, and intra division uh, r- rivalries are going to be far less or certainly less uh, less played, um, you know, there's that uh, there's that uh, story out of Pittsburgh, right? Hey, the Yankees haven't been here in 20 years. We get to see them now for a series or two, right? And I don't know. Maybe it is a bit of spreading the wealth, but I I just I think we lose some stuff, a whole bunch of stuff, a lot of the history, which this game has more than any other sport in this country. Right. And I don't know. You you tinker with that and then it just becomes just another billionaire's play toy.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with those those Pittsburgh Yankees series, at least the ones in Pittsburgh, because I mean, basically, it looks to me like with the, the interleague games we get right now, if you've got a natural rivalry, Yankees mets Dodgers, uh, Angels, A's, Giants, White Sox, Cubs, uh, Royals, Cardinals, um, you know, Reds, Indians, uh, sorry, Guardians, um, you, you do see a noticeable increase in attendance. I mean, people are clearly buying into that. But then you get... The non-rivalry games in the opposite league, and they do no better if that than uh, they do against playing their own natural league opponents. So, I mean, I, I think it's 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 worked to that extent. But if if you're a team that doesn't have a natural rival, I don't know that it helps you much at all. And like you say, it it does diminish the importance of leagues. Um, I mean, everything. I mean, the the, the whole playoff structure is designed to diminish the importance of leagues because it diminishes the importance of winning the league. Yeah. Um,
1: And I I think, I think the heritage is too, right. And, and yeah, this is the historian or the amateur armchair historian in me, right. It's like, you know, the people, you know, people barely recognize like where these names came from or why they exist or how they got that way or, or, you know, from, from what city this franchise originally, uh, 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 emanated from I mean all that stuff is it's hard enough to sort of prevent that from being whitewashed and now I think this is just one gigantic new coat of paint that's only going to make it worse to to remember any of that stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean they, I, to me the biggest trouble is you're not seeing you're not seeing kids pick up the game that we did both playing and reading about it and you know learning about it when you know we're kids you know you're reading my greatest day in baseball and um, you know, all those kind of books that we read when we were kids. Um, and I see that I can, rem- I remember my son coming home, lamenting one summer day and he said it was boring today. And I said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, I tried to get a baseball game, but nobody else wanted to play, you know, cause all of his kids, you know, basketball, video games, stuff like that. They're, they're not coming to the game. They're not being brought to the game. Um, and so they're, they're not learning that stuff. That, you know, slowly seeped into our consciousness about franchise moves and old names and, and great games and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's getting lost. I mean, there'll always be crazy people like us who learn it, but uh, uh, the, the the broader fan base is
1: disappearing. All right. Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to leave it on, on, on that note. So I'm, let me uh, let me just leave you with let me. I'm going to put you on the spot here. So of all the research that you did uh, in the American League and and it's its bumblingness, if shall we say, for in its expansion thing. So which um, let's call them lineages Uh, of which lineage to you was the most interesting and or head scratching? Or did you learn something uh, curious about that maybe you didn't know going in? And I'll give you a few choices. Right. So there's the Philadelphia to Kansas City to Oakland A's tree. Uh, there's the Washington senators to Minnesota and then the new senators to Texas thing. So the senators ish um, uh-huh. and maybe the travails of the angels, right, who seem to want to be in Los Angeles, but they want to be really broadly California. And then they're Orange County now they're Anaheim. Now, the Anaheim angels, I you know, to me, those are kind of like, and, and and Seattle doesn't count, right? Okay, the Seattle pilots doesn't count because that's just the, the <laughs> yeah. ultimate. Oh, you, uh,
2: you, you're taking the big one away from me. I did okay. take it away. I,
1: are, 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 are any of those uh, more curious than others in your mind, or, or are there any any sort of things sort of stand out from, from any of those? Because they're all just crazy in their own sort of way. Yeah,
2: I, I guess the strangest thing to me is why the American League – First of all, allowed Charlie Finley in and then <laughs> why they continued to not only tolerate him, but to let him get away with stuff. I mean, yeah, and, and did... why
1: not the Orange Baseball? We need that back. Right. OK, yeah.
2: Um, but, uh, you know, the, he, the, he tries to to move to Dallas. They shoot him down. He tries to move to Louisville. They shoot him down. Um, but then they let him go to Oakland. Why? And again, I think it's because they wanted, you know, a a bigger market on the on the West Coast. But but the point, I mean, why did they let this guy in to begin with? They they got warning. I mean, they asked some of their members, you know, to go out and, you know, check around Wall Street and stuff and find out about this guy. And the recommendation that came back is don't touch him. But they went ahead and touched him. Not only touched him, they let him into the room. Um, and, And I really think that you know having Having people like that who were not at all interested in, in the overall good performance of their league really makes it much harder for them to operate. Um, he's always going to be in there agitating and, and not agitating particularly well. I mean, sometimes clearly he was right. He was the only one in the room who seemed to understand Marvin Miller. Um, but I mean ultimately he is you know doesn't play well with others.
1: Yes, and our story about the california golden seals of the of uh the national hockey League is certainly evidence of that too um yeah he's he's a he's a conundrum uh across leagues and uh, he said an equal opportunity uh um concerning soul for sure
2: yes exactly i mean he's just he's not going to get along
1: um all right well this is this has been great i you know again i i i i lament the fact that um that the uh, the leagues and the distinctions between them are are ever blurring, um, but I think it's important, right? This kind of stuff is is hugely important because it it is the fabric of the game. It is where uh, the teams came from and their identities, and it's all wrapped up. It's in it, you know history is not uh, is often very messy, uh, yeah. often very convoluted. Um, but to ignore it is uh, probably the worst sin you could ever you ever have and I you know partially it's kind of why we do these shows because you know Mm -hmm. these are little nooks and crannies that people most often forget um and and I think it's timely that this comes out uh, and I'll let you promote in a second comes out now literally in the midst of what is going to be I think a next generation of hugely significant evolutionary changes in this game call it modernization or call it um an abandonment of what got them there I don't know it's probably something in between but I don't know. I'm erring towards the sides of cynicism. I, ha- I hate to say.
2: Yeah. Well, I, hate. I mean, I think they need to do some things. And of course I have my ideas about what I'd like to see them do, but something's got to give, I mean, I, to me, their ultimate problem is television, football, basketball are tremendous games for television. You can get everything on one screen and people can see it. Baseball, It's it's too physically diverse. You get a runner on base and a ball in the gap. You can't, you know. If I'm sitting in the stands, I can kind of keep everything on one corner of my eye. But if I'm if I'm watching on TV, you know, there goes the ball in the gap. Where's the runner? You know, and and then you've got these announcers who who tell you about what one runner does, but what not what the other runner does. so I, I, I think it's, it's a problem for them. And that is a problem that is not going to go away. Uh, you know, pe- people raised on television, I think, don't think, get a, a real appreciation of the game.
1: All right. Time to promote. <laughs> Name promote. the book When's it coming out. And uh, what are you going to do to promote it? Hopefully you're going to get out there a little bit uh, now that uh, things are seemingly relaxing a little bit. And maybe some book signings or what?
2: Uh, yeah, I hope so. Uh, the book is called Stumbling Around the Bases. Uh, The American League mismanages the expansion eras. Um, I am told it it has arrived at the publisher's warehouse uh, a month late Um, and uh, is going to be distributed. I would it's certainly it's already available on like Amazon. Um, And I think copies will be going out to bookstores. Uh, Certainly, you can get it directly from Nebraska if you want to. And yeah, I'll be doing some other, uh, uh, you know, opportunities like this one with you. Um, and, uh, I will be getting out to some, uh, some signings, especially at saber meetings. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think there are just some great stories to be told from this book. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I, I, I love to tell them.
1: All right. Our many, many thanks to Andy McHugh uh, the book is either uh, coming out in a couple of days, and you can pre-order it, or it's already out uh, and uh, available for purchase. Uh, it just depends on whether you are listening to this before, uh, or on, or after April first. That's the divining line. But regardless, it's called "Stumbling Around the Bases: The American League's Mismanagement in the Expansion Eras." It is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, And uh, it is a great read. Uh, You will learn a lot as I did. And uh, it's compelling stuff uh, if you've ever fancied yourself as a historian of of baseball. And uh, frankly, uh, just the uh, to me, the fascinating, uh, torturous uh, uh, journeys of teams uh, going from city to city or expanding in that and whatnot. And uh, a great example of how to not necessarily do it (laughs) uh, in the American League's case uh you can find uh a a convenient link to that book by the way so we're available wherever books are found of course uh but if you'd like to give us a few shekels of referral love we always appreciate that keep our lights going um uh you can go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com just search up this episode number 254 my goodness with andy McHugh, and you'll find a convenient link to the book and uh you will do so by the way while you're there Why don't you also check out Andy's book from 2015, also published by the University of Nebraska Nebraska Press, he says, uh, called Mover and Shaker, Walter O'Malley, the Dodgers and Baseball's Westward Expansion. It's uh, arguably uh, the companion book uh, to this American League uh, festival uh, that we just uh, talked uh, with Andy about for the last hour or so. Um, No more important person uh, in the uh, shakeup of the National League uh, and the, uh, the... uh, the terrain of Major League baseball then uh, than he in that process uh, moving the Dodgers uh, and then uh, behind them the Do- the Giants that wasn't sort of uh, done uh, just by chance uh, there was sort of some rhyme and reason behind it uh, and that's a great book too and you can order that through our little convenient link too uh, however you get it um, uh, by all means get it and both of them frankly it uh, you'll uh, be glad you did it'll be wonderful pre-summer beach reading material ready and raring to go when the uh the days get hotter and uh the beach beckons uh let's see what else while you're on good Seats, still you can see every single seat well they're, they're there for you to see you can search them up as well but of course you can listen to every single stinking episode we've ever done we put them all on the website uh, you can stream them you can share them with friends you can do whatever you want of course the most um logical way to ensure that you get every single episode of this show is to subscribe to us or follow us for god's sakes and wherever you get or consume or stream or listen to podcasts we're available just about everywhere you can find them for god's sakes so so just do that at least and of course if there's a place where you can rate and review them well you know we appreciate it especially if it's a damn damn good one uh please do so there we we love that apple for sure spotify think's getting into that doesn't matter. Wherever you can rate and review, please do it. We appreciate that. And it's going to help other people find the show. Uh, let's see. goodseatsstillavailable.com, Also the place uh, where you can sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Uh, just search around. You'll find a little link for that. Uh, our social media feeds, of course. Social media uh, is where we, uh, you know, try to promote and uh, interact with some of our fans. Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. On Facebook, there's a page called Good Seats Still Available. And yes, you can send us email as well. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Last but not least, they're not booing. They're yelling, Jerry, Jerry Payne. And uh, he is, of course, our chief cook and bottle washer when it comes to putting all of our pieces together and editing. We've given him some uh, really interesting challenges this week, but we appreciate uh, his work, not only this week, but every single week. And uh, we appreciate you, of course, for listening. Thanks so much for doing so. We'll see you next week. Enjoy whatever sports that are out there. There's lots seemingly out there. Hope you're enjoying the spring thus far, and hopefully it's warming up where you are. Until next week, take care and uh, love you. Bye. Bye.